from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today, our uh, guest is Professor Ella Oliensis, the chair of the Department of Classics at Berkeley and a scholar of classical Latin literature. Her most recent book is called Loving Writing, Ovid's Amores, published by Cambridge University Press. It offers an original and compelling exploration of the love poetry of the Roman poet Ovid, or Publius Ovidius Naso, as he was called. Um, Ovid, we know, is one of the most influential poets in the Western tradition, indeed in all of world literature. It would be impossible to imagine our poetic tradition without Ovid. Um, and it's a delight, therefore, to read this important reconsideration of his love poetry, uh, which, as we know, was massively influential for later poets. So, Nelly, let me welcome you to the book chat, and thank you for agreeing to talk today about your work. Perhaps we could begin uh, by me asking you to tell us about this particular corpus of Ovid's poetry. Um, it's very influential, but it's not the most famous of his work. When we think of Ovid, we usually think of the Metamorphoses, uh, but the Amores are important as well. And maybe you could just describe this and kind of place it a little bit in Ovid's uh, corpus for us. Yeah, sure. That, that's uh, it's it's a more complicated question than it might seem to be, but I can give a simple answer to it. So, um, the Amores is Ovid's first collection of poetry. This we know it's the first thing that he came out with, um, preceding the Metamorphoses by well, that's hard to say, but I'm just going to make it up and say about 20 years, let's say. Um, and the reason the question is a little complicated is that, so it's the first thing he writes, the first uh, work in his elegiac corpus and his corpus of love poetry, which is followed by things like the Heroides poems impersonating mythological heroines and the Ars Amatoria, very well known, and you know, his other things. But anyway, so it's, it's the first sort of um, selection in his love poetry, but what makes it a little complicated is that the collection is headed by an epigram that tells us that the collection we are reading, the three book collection we are reading is a second edition of what was originally a five book edition. This is produced, you know, there's a huge amount of scholarship around this. What <laughs> did the missing five book collection look like? You know, and I'm completely agnostic on the question of what it looked like, whether there even was a five book collection because the epigram, that little introductory epigram does so much wonderful work for the collection that follows. Some scholars think it's, you know, there was nothing preceding it. In any case, what this means though, is that the chronology, not only because of the epigram, but also because of some poems within the collection that seem to point to later moments or later collections, the chronology of the Amores is very hard to pin down. So on the one hand, it's his first work, and on the other hand, it isn't his first work. Okay. Right. So, you know, um, yeah, there's that. So, so how did you get into working on this stuff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I have been kind of working my way backwards through Ovid now for for about for about 20 years, I would say. So I started with the exile poetry, actually, which I read on an airplane 
flying to California, in fact, at one point. I, I got obsessed, yeah, yeah. I got obsessed with the exile poetry, then I moved back in time to the metamorphoses, and finally I moved back to the amores. And um, for many contingent reasons, I mean, this this I I this project, you know, might have been something else. But I think with the amores, I think the reason I ended up actually committing myself to writing a book on the amores is that I I have I. I don't know quite how to put this, but I felt that my pleasure in the Amores or my experience in the Amores was not registered for the most part in existing scholarship. And it's always hard to say because I'm a huge fan of the existing scholarship on the Amores, which does all kinds of fabulous things. You know, it's just full of brilliant work, but it just didn't match up with what, with, with how I felt the Amores. So I kind of wanted to write a book that was more located in my own pleasure. That's yeah. great. I mean, that's the, the only reason to write a book, right? Is because you, you, there's a space in your own experience there that hasn't been filled up by the, by the relevant uh, or existent um, criticism. So that's, uh, that's great. It's great to hear that. Um, so could we talk a, a little bit about um, the persona of the Amores? So there's this guy called Nazo or Nazo, I assume it's pronounced Nazo, though I think W.S. Gilbert rhymes it with say so in one of his lyrics um, in uh, Iolanth. So, uh, but we'll call him Nazo for um, the purpose of uh, argument. So he's a, he's there. He's this kind of strange character who's a kind of double of the author, but he's not a double of the author. In fact, he's much more disruptive in some way than most poetic persona. Could you talk a little bit about how he works? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, for me, this was, this um, is a, a very important kind of point, okay, which I, I spend yeah. too much time harping on. But, and the way I have to say it's a little bit paradoxical because my first book, which was about Horace, made a huge deal of the fact that it's kind of, there are big problems with an absolute differentiation between the author and his persona. You know, I was pushing to reunite Horace with his persona, whereas in this book, I'm doing exactly the reverse. I'm really trying to demarcate, you know, a, a very strong distinction between Ovid and this character I'm calling Nazo. But the reason for that uh, is that I am, okay, I'm doing that and then I undo that gesture in the second half of the book. This is a roundabout answer to the question. Feel free to come back and tell me I have completely respond to you. But um, there is a tendency because of various features of the amores, there is a tendency which is very natural and justifiable to draw a very sharp distinction between the poet of the collection and the lover of the collection. And the lover is this scandalous, ridiculous, dreadful, you know, ludicrous character with whom we do not want to associate the author Ovid. Whereas the poet is a poet and therefore we automatically want to associate him with the poet Ovid. And my sense about this is that what happens in the scholarship again, understandably and justifiably, and this is a perfectly reasonable thing to do, it's not what I want to do, is uh, that scholars tend to give the poet a free pass. In other words, when, when this, the narrator, the character within the Amores is acting like a poet, he tends, this is a generalization, not entirely true, but he tends to be treated as a representative of Ovid and to be kind of dignified by that association. 
Whereas the lover, of course, has nothing to do with Ovid and is this scandalous character. So the reason I'm interested in Nazo at that using that name is precisely that I want to, I use the name Nazo for the poet. In other words, for me, it's hugely important that the poet in the collection be not identified with Ovid so that we have the license <laughs> to recognize his right. more problematic attributes. So I'm right. very interested in putting the poet and the lover back together since after all, this is one character across the right. Americas. It's not like there are two different people running around the collection. Right. There's one right. person running around the collection and to me it's right. really important that he's the same character throughout. Right. right, and you also don't have the kind of temporal distinction between the poet and the and the, uh, you don't have a kind of narrative the way you do in Dante, where Dante the pilgrim is not the same as Dante the poet, right? I mean, it's, it's, right. it's more complicated. I've just received a message from one of my colleagues that I should remind those of you out there in Zoom land that you can type in questions through the Q&A um, function of the Zoom platform uh, and, and we'll ask Nelly these questions uh, at the end of the conversation. So feel free to do that. Um, so that's great. I mean, I think that's a, I, I have to say that reading this, uh, reading this book, um, and I'd read the Amores because it, they're, they're pretty influential in areas that I work in, but I had not read them particularly closely. And, and I have to say it was entering into your book was almost like entering into a kind of labyrinth because we, we have this kind of initial sort of close analysis of the poems and sort of things that are going on and then by if we move on and on in, in your in your in your reading which is is quite compelling and 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 I don't want to it's a bit of a page turner I have to say that the 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 analysis gets more and more complicated and Nazo's relationship to Ovid becomes more and more complicated and his relationship to the woman Corina becomes more and more complicated and more and more issues start to enter into the into your reading, questions of sexuality, questions of violence, castration, uh, um, eunuchs pop up here and there, um, uh, masochism. I mean, it gets wilder and wilder as the story goes on. And, 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 and really, by the time we get to the end, of, at least by the time I got to the end of the book, I mean, it was, I, I was just reading the poems in a completely different way. So it was really quite compelling in that regard. Um, um, so could you talk a little bit about the sex? There's sex all over the place. Somebody asked me, a colleague asked me if it was going to be uh, appropriate for his teenage son to watch this uh, uh, event. And I, I said I thought that it probably was. But um, could you just give us an idea of the way in which sexuality works in, in, the, in the collections? <laughs> okay, that's, yeah. Um, it's a big question. Yeah. So what's interesting- It seems to be tied into reading a lot. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what's interesting to me is that it, I, I, I agree. I mean, sexuality is kind of everywhere. You know, this book is like sort of eroticized from start to finish. But what's interesting is there's actually not a whole lot of sex in this I mean, there isn't, you know, if you compare the Ars Amatoria, which actually has some passages about, you know, giving advice on things like appropriate sexual positions for women to assume, depending on their physique, and, you know, and that really goes, like, talks about things that I, in case there are young people in the audience, I probably shouldn't mention. But the Amores, there's not much sex. I mean, there's not much 
sexual action in the amores, but this does not mean that the poems are not sexual. So this is also something that I'm kind of interested in, especially in the second half of the book where I shift my attention. Okay, if I can back up a second. In the first half of the book, basically I'm trying to take the poet down right. and, and show that he's, his poetic ambitions are tied up with a lot of unsavory uh, emotions like envy, like competition, especially with his girlfriend, which is yeah. strange in some ways. Anyway, so I'm kind of taking the poet down. The second half of the book, I'm trying to promote the lover, which is a difficult endeavor in some ways, um, by thinking about these issues around sort of his peculiar form of eroticism, which I associate with masochism and a couple of different registers, one more particular, like, you know, soccer mazov that masochism the whips and pains variety and you work through that you work through the soccer mazov yeah connection there yeah in a nice i way. mean i find it very suggestive i just find especially deleuze's account of soccer mazov just suggestive for reading off it i'm just struck by you know how yeah. how the various ways in which the amores play according to that same style. And then at the end of the book, I'm interested in masochism in this more fundamental sense, the kind of La Planche version of masochism, which has to do with sexuality as such, and with sort of a fundamental intrusion of something alien and this kind of mode of agitation, which seems to me, I don't know if this is making any sense, this is very compressed, but it seems to me um, very much where the Ovidian project is. And at that point, I don't really mind saying the Ovidian project. You know, I don't mind so much giving up um, the distinction toward the end of this book, those two figures, Ovid and Nazo, start coming very, very close together. Right. Hmm. Um, so um, could we say something about the girlfriend? Uh, I mean, she puts up with a lot. Corina, yeah. her name is, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, can we talk a bit, a bit about the kind of sexual politics of this? And, and, and are they different from, you know, uh, Catullus? I mean, we, you know, we have a whole series of these Latin poets who are in love. Yes. And, but it seems to be particularly, I hate to use the word perverse in the case of Ovid, mm -hmm. uh, not because there, there's anything particularly sexually wild going on, as you say. In fact, there's not very much sex at all. But just the way in which she's manipulated throughout the collection seems to me to be very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and she takes on particular uh, forms of agency and, um, uh, and is evasive in certain kinds of ways. Could you fill us in a bit on that? Yeah, I mean, this is a, it is absolutely true that Ovid is, you know, one in a line, kind of the last in that period, in a line of love poets, starting right. with and then we have Propertius and Tabalus and so on. And, and, um, and his representation of Corinna, who is the main named female with whom he associates himself, uh, you know, belongs to that tradition, but also departs from it. And I have to say, here is just here is not an area where I feel that my book has much to contribute. I mean, I'm not knocking my book. I like my book and I think it has a lot to contribute. But in this particular area, I, there's been really good work on this theme by a number of, of scholars, 
on both on thinking about the kind of problematic dimensions of the representation, Ovid's representation of Corinna and of women in general, and of how it relates to the tradition in, in terms of kind of intensifying it or going over the top with it, you know, and operating therefore perhaps as a kind of expose. I kind of, partly because there's been so much good work on that subject, on the sexual politics of of, of the amores and of elegy and love poetry in, in general, you know, in a Roman context, you know, it's it's not a place that I go. And I guess the other reason I tend not to go there is that I am trying to do this kind of weird thing, especially in the second half of my book, which is find ways of identifying with Nazo as a lover. And right. the more I enter into the zone of sexual politics, the harder that is. You know what I mean? The more difficult that is to do. So one thing I will say about my take on masochism is that it, it, it restores some agency, kind of in a perverse way, to Corinna. And I'm not the first person to make this observation either, but in, insofar as she seems to be a, a, a partner in a very stagey game of desire that Nazo is inviting her to play with him. So, you know, there's a way that masochism helps me skirt right. an issue that I that I feel you know is a hugely important and almost inevitable way of thinking about the collection, but is one that I am really trying to avoid so that I can do something else. Right. There's something right. experimental right. about that, and I I not yeah. Anyway, that's all I'll say. Yeah, well, no, it's good. And, and, but that's a, that's a nice move in the book because it does make it possible for you to go in, in other places. And there, I mean, there are certain areas, as you know, when you write a book where you sort of say, I don't want to go there because it's a rabbit hole I'll never get out of and other people have worked on it, let's go over here. Yeah. Um, speaking of rabbit holes, could, uh, the, the one thing that most people know about uh, Ovid, of course, is that he was exiled. Yeah. You don't seem to have much interest in, in Ovid's exile, no. but you do sort of give interesting comments about it. So could you, I mean, I could read you a little, well, I will read you a little bit about it. This is uh, page 133. You say, Ovid's relationship to Augustus, to put the question as vaguely as possible, is a fascinating subject one that Ovid's eventual exile by the angry emperor renders practically irresistible. For my own part, I take it for granted that Ovid's poetry represents a generalized threat to Augustus, a threat involving nothing so specific as re resentment of a given piece of legislation, nor even of the erosion of Republican libertas, but diffused across Ovid's oeuvre, more, most often in the form of a repeated revelation of the fictitious foundations of political authority. Mm -hmm. I yeah. can't stop there. So, um, can you just say a little bit about that? I mean, no, it's not. A, this is not a book about Ovid's exile. Yes. You have worked on the exile. Poems, yes, 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 yes. And 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 it's impossible to think about Ovid and his place in the Western tradition, right. or in world literature, without thinking about the okay. exile. Yeah, yeah. So, Tim, you're going to think I'm really, I'm I'm recalcitrant. I'm I'm a hopeless interlocutor because. Yes, I am interested in the exile, actually, and I have written some about this, and I'm very interested in Ovid's relation to Augustus, and there's been brilliant work on this by, you know, other people to whom I am much indebted, like, you know, Marchese and Hardy and others. Um, but in this book, I, I, I am, okay, let me put it this way. 
this question of Ovid's relation to Augustus for many people is in fact a question that has to be asked about the Amores. Not everyone does. There are many ways people take up the Amores and that's not fun. Um, but I was very proud of myself that I only have one reference to Augustus in my index. I mean, that is actually intentional. In other words, this is yet another place that I, where I am basically not going. And again, it's not just because other people have done it. You know what I mean? It doesn't need to be done. Someone else has said it. But because the amores I am trying to read or to present is one that resides inside the kind of strange, fictional, fantastical, eroticized zone that Ovid has, has made for us. So I am doing my best to keep Augustus out of picture. And I actually succeeded quite well. And I have to say that when I got my readers reports back from the press, I thought it might be the case that someone would say, hey, you, you know, where is Augustus in this? But luckily they didn't. I mean, they, they didn't feel it as an absence. Yeah, so, well, I didn't feel it as an absence either. I didn't feel it as an absence either, but it's only my sort of natural curiosity and my general sense of, you know, the rest of Ovid yes. that made me yes. ask that yes. question. Yes, and I will say that the Amores, insofar as they're, you know, of a piece with the Ars Amatoria, which is uh, Ovid's love poetry is put forth as the alleged reason for his exile, you know, because the immorality of his poetry going right. against Augustus' right. whole, you know, so so it's a very reasonable thing to be thinking about in the Amores. Um, yeah. And yes, one can play them out in that direction. Again, yeah. I'm really... No, that's fine. So I wanted to uh, shift gears a, a tiny bit. One of the things that I that I really loved about the book um, was the way in which it focused on, it began by focusing on questions of form and it sort of ends by focusing on questions of form. Um, and when we talk, you know, when we talk about poetry, it, it, it's very easy for people not to want to talk about questions of form because, you know, they're technical and they're, you know, often dry and so on and so forth. I have to say your discussion of form was not at all dry in this case. Um, and uh, could you talk a little bit, I mean, the, the, the collection begins in this really wacky way where we're told that Ovid is busy writing an epic and that it would appear, or rumor has it, that love came and stole one of the feet from his poetry so he can't write an epic now. Could you, so there, I mean, there's kind of ma massive implications of a form. Could you explain that a bit more to us, for, especially for those of us who are not Latinists? Okay, yes. I mean, there, the, the first poem of the Amores, leaving aside the uh, little, you know, epigram about the second edition, stages this crazy, crazy scene um, where just as you say, Ovid is writing, you know, hexameter lines, which are the same each, right? It's the meter epic of Homer, Virgil, and so on. Uh, when he says in this amazing moment, he says that resise cupido dicitur at cunum surrepuisse pedem. So, you know, Cupid is said to have laughed and stolen a foot, so stolen a foot from his meter, leaving him with elegiac couplets because the second line of the couplet is technically a five foot line instead of a six foot line. 
so he's stuck with the meter of elegiac poetry, but he doesn't have anything to put in it because he's not in love and so on. And Cupid then shoots an arrow into him and solves that problem. So what interests me about this poem, I, everyone is taken by this poem because it's so, you know, such a wild thing to do, but I, I'm, on the one hand, it has been taken quite properly to signal the priority of poetry over love, since the origin of this collection is not desire exactly. It's a, it's a metrical phenomenon, which then has to be filled with, um, with something, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm interested in the extent to which that moment fictionalizes the poet. Like, so the poet has this weird thing happen to him where Cupid shows up and they have a kind of discussion or he talks to Cupid and then Cupid says something to him and shoots him with an arrow. So there's a kind of almost epic scene, event, you know, involving the character of the poet. So I'm, I'm interested in this scene in two different ways. On the one hand, I, I, on the one hand, I'm interested in the way it inverts the conventions of poetry generally by exposing the fact that when you're writing a poem, you're not, it's, you know, there's not just some overflow of something that lands into meter, right? It, it, it shows you the, it sort of lets you into this, the poet's study, mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand. And on the other hand, that the poet's study itself becomes kind of part of the fiction. And this is where I want to call that guy in the study. I want to call him Nazo and not call him Ovid so that I can kind of get us to keep in mind the fact that his vicissitudes are at the same level as the erotic antics right. of him when he's behaving as a lover. So it is, just, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so is it the case, are you still there? Yes. I am, sorry. Okay, that's right. Is it the case, is it the case, uh, so I, I don't want to get too um, anachronistic here, but I mean, this seems incredibly modern to me, this yeah. gesture that, that form precedes content or that, and, and, but, but, that, but, but that the poetic self or the writing self is also implicated in that problem and that you can't separate the two. Yeah. It, seems, it seems, I mean, it seems to me extremely uh, modern. I mean, I think of in, in the French tradition, which is the one I know best, you know, the poet Paul Valéry talking about hearing a rhythm in his head out of which one of his most famous poems is generated, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, but, so could we, could, since we're getting to the end of the hour, could we um, zoom out a tiny bit, pardon the, no pun intended, could we zoom out a tiny bit and think a little bit more about sort of modern analogs here? I mean, there's a lot in, there's a lot in, in these poems that reminds me of Shakespeare. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and the strange inverted logic, the impossibility of distinguishing the poet from the lover, the, 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 the curious games of mirroring and doubling that seem constantly to be happening. Yeah. Um, is that your sense as well? Do you mean Shakespeare in the sonnets? I'm thinking of Shakespeare in the sonnets, right? Yeah. Because to me, in some ways, I feel as if Shakespeare leaves intact, potentially anyway, what I call the authenticity effect. In other words, it's possible. It's possible to read the sonnets, if you want, you know, as a kind of 
transcript or artful representation of emotions. Do you know what I mean? Like you can do that. I'm not saying that they yeah. don't want to, but you yeah. still Whereas Ovid makes that much harder. And this question about form, I mean, I hadn't really thought about the fact, but it's true that my book begins and almost ends right. with the form of the, of the elegiac couplet. Yeah. And one thing that, again, I, you can tell me, Tim, uh, this better than I can, but one thing that is going on in Ovid, which I don't feel in Shakespeare's sonnets with, you know, the, the sonnet form so much, is the intense eroticization use an ugly word, of, yeah. of the Algi couplet and Ovid because um, it's not simply that form comes first, it's that form is actually a medium of sexual energy. Yeah. And I really, I mean, I actually believe that of the Amores. And I yeah. don't feel that, I don't feel that in Shakespeare, but I, you know, I, I, I think I might feel it more in the plays than in the songs. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly in the place where form is also uh, is often staged. I mean, we think of something like the the I mean, obvious moment, the moment in Romeo and Juliet, where Romeo and Juliet are seducing each other. And they, in fact, make a sonnet by putting their hands together yeah. and speaking. Yeah. To each other. Yeah. I mean, that's a would be a perfect example. But you're right. And uh, I mean, uh, there may be sonnet readers out there who who have thought more about this than I have. But something about the strange dialectical structure of the sonnet, the way it's constantly turning back on itself and reflecting on itself, seems to take it out of that kind of immediate erotic charge that you seem to be pointing to in Ovid. And that's, that's an interesting connection, um, given the fact that he's such an influential figure in, in writing about love. Mm -hmm. um, I had uh, other things I wanted to talk about, such as the parrot, poem, but we do have a question and um, somebody says, what is your take on Ovid on Amores 1-5? Okay, well, oh, yes. So Amores 1-5 is probably the most famous single poem in the Amores. It's the poem in which Nazo recalls this, you know, fiesta where Corinna shows up scantily clad and he tears her clothes off and they have sex. And it's often taken to be the kind of pinnacle of Ovidian eroticism and the kind of quintessence of what the Amores are. You know, this is Ovid, Ovid, the one who actually, this is the moment, this is the sexiest moment, uh, officially speaking, in the collection. So, you know, <laughs> Part of what I'm trying to do in this book is dethrone 1-5 in the sphere of erotics. I would like to replace 1-5 as the pinnacle of Ovidian eroticism with 1-4, the poem that precedes it. I can say more about that. In exactly the same way that I would like to dethrone the immortal poet who shows up at the ends of the, the first and last, the first and third books, I would like to dethrone that poet, not replace him with the poet of the poems that come before, but at least show how he is the same person as that kind of unpleasant lover. I mean, how, how his poetic success is founded on the gestures he makes of relegating his girlfriend in the preceding poem. So to me, these are analogous. My desire, my 
possibly perverse desire to make that gesture. So with one five, it's, you know, um, there have been wonderful things written about that poem, contouring and nuancing the discussion of its supposed direct sensuality, showing that it's actually much more complicated than that. And it's, you know, there's been great work on the poem from that perspective. But for me, the, the problem with one five is that it's, well, I don't want, I have no problems with one five. Let me just speak. More <laughs> about say, but you uh, have things to I say about it. I read the poem as in, in tandem with one four, which is a poem which is nothing but discourse addressed to a girlfriend who's going to be at the same dinner party that Ovid is going to be at, Nazo. See, I said Ovid there. That's because it's the lover. I don't mind saying Ovid. If it's okay. the lover, I don't mind saying Ovid. Um, and he's giving her instructions on how to behave at this dinner party where she's going to be there with another man. And to me, the... the the real charge of the amores, the real erotic energy of the amores happens in discourse, like in its frustrated, agitated, derailing into discourse, not in this kind of, um, to me, very bland, fill in the blanks template of super masculine desire, which is one five. It's like, look at her breasts, look at her legs. What a, what a nice belly. What, you know, it's just, you make it up for yourself, guys, basically. I just think it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's aberrant and functioning partly as a response to one force. So that's, I have about five pages on those two poems toward the end of my book, trying to. No, I, I, I love that part. And, and I have to say, um, one of the things that also kind of uh, really opened my eyes is the way in which you read poems together yeah. And the way in which, I mean, you, a moment, a minute ago, you said the erotic charge is, you know, in the discourse, but also the erotic charge is, it is in the relationship between poems in some kind of way, right? A lot of the, uh, the ways in which they respond to each other, they reflect on each other. Yeah. And in some ways that, I mean, that in itself is, is quite startling. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of Petrarch, where you, where there's a blank space between the sonnets and stuff happens and we're not quite sure what you know what to make of that yes. but in Ovid's case it seems to be much more deliberate and and as you argue these texts are these poems are really in a kind of dialogic relationship yeah. to yeah. each other well I often. would say I mean that with one four and one five you can see it, it, it's not hard to see the relation there because one is frustrated the other is satisfied you know one is night the other is midday they, they, they play together but the poems yeah. I find, the, the pairings I find really most <laughs> satisfying are the ones that are just crazy, like the second to last poem of the first book is about Corinna, well, she's not named, but a woman who's lost all her hair and is now bald, yeah. using too much hair. I love that. It's wacky <laughs> poem. And then the next poem is Ovid Nazo saying, I've made it, I'm going to be one of the canonical poets, I'm you know, gonna live forever. Those two poems feel completely unrelated. And my, I have to say one of the things I get most satisfaction from is showing how they are in fact right. Right. Yeah. connected. So well, that, that's the job of the critic, yeah. So, we, so I think we have time for one more question. We have a question from Kathleen McCarthy, who says, I found really fascinating the way you show Corinna functioning as a kind of rival, creative rival to Nazo, as well as a partner in his masochistic game. Mm -hmm. uh, can you say more about the implications of these two aspects of how Corinna functions? Mm -hmm. Not only we talked about the masochistic part, but she yeah. is a kind of yeah. rival. Yes. 
yes, this is this is something. And actually, uh, since Kathleen McCarthy raised the question, I will say that I feel as if this line of thought was inspired by her, uh, because she once asked me. You once asked me, Kathleen. Um, something about, I can't remember what it was now, but something about um, rival poets, how, rival poets not showing, you know, that there really aren't rival poets generally in the collections. And that, so I thought that was really interesting. And, yeah. and it, within the world of the Amores, rival poets or even, um, uh, well, I'll put it there, rival poets are displaced by the girlfriend who holds the place of a rival which makes very little sense, you know, in a certain yeah. sense, right? Because right. she's, she's not a poet, although Corinna, of course, is the name of a famous poet as one of my... That's, that's, that's a fantastic, I mean, again, it's, it's one of the very strange um, uh, features of the collection in the Western tradition. I mean, we always have rival poets. I mean, you read the troubadours, there's always a rival, there's either a rival lover or a rival poet, and sometimes both. Right. And here, here there is no rival poet and right. she's the rival. And that's yes. Yes. crazy. And, yeah, I mean, and it's, she's the rival in this weird sense. And again, going back to the poem about her losing her hair and the poem about Abed Nazo becoming an immortal poet. I mean, there's a whole play there where it's almost as if his ability to proclaim his canonization depends on her having lost her hair, her being in the zone, this other zone of the feminine, the, you know, um, the worldly, the mundane, the, the, the perishable, whereas he, you know, is, has entered this completely other world. And that may sound crazy, but I think I demonstrate it in detail. Right. You know, so I don't think that's, that's simply a gratuitous yeah. thing to say. And I would say the one exception within the Amores is the figure of Tabullus, potential exception, a senior mm -hmm. elegist. Um, and there, interestingly enough, Ovid effectively appears to have no rivalrous emotions at all, although as has been shown, you know, and as I, I kind of bulk out the someone else's discussion of it, there are traces, there are residual traces of rivalrous feelings there, but for the most part, it all gets aimed at women, not at men. Yeah. Really right, yeah. So, so I think it's probably time for us to wind up. I just want to thank you for taking time to talk to us. This is, it's an extraordinary book. Uh, I mean, it seems to me as someone who works on later poetry in the, in the, in the Western tradition, that, that, that there are all kinds of ways now in which we have to go back and reread a lot of lyric, uh, especially thinking about the implications of Ovid's influence for any number of poets, especially, thinking especially in the Renaissance, but, but even later. So it's, it's a really wonderful um, exploration. And um, uh, once again, for those of you out there in Zoom land, it's called Loving Writing Ovid's Amores by Ellen Oliensis. Cambridge University Press. Um, uh, run, don't walk to your local uh, online book <laughs> purveyor and order a copy. It's, it's really great and it reads easily and wonderfully. So it's really the best kind of literary criticism. And, and thank you, Nellie, for talking to us and thanks for, uh, for writing the book. And I wanna uh, tell everybody um, uh, that uh, we'll be doing this again soon. This is our first uh, online book chat, but uh, now that we seem to have been able to do it, we'll try it again. So uh, uh, stay tuned for, at the Townsend uh, Humanities Center website for 
information about further book chats. And um, thank you again. And we'll see you soon. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Nellie. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley book chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.